Well, I think that's true, isn't it? I, most of us, I think, dream big when we're young. We all, at one point or another, I think we all have aspirations to do great things with our lives. Everyone wants their life to count for something big, something meaningful, something that makes a difference in the world. And then life happens, and our vision for the future sometimes changes. Our, our expectations shrink. Our enthusiasm for pursuing our dreams begins to wane until at times I think the passion we once had for our vision of the future is gone, and we settle into a life that seems necessary, uh, inevitable, responsible, a life that may meet others' expectations for us far more than it does our own. And I wonder sometimes why is that? Why is that pattern, at least in our culture, so often repeated in the lives of so many people? And the truth is there, there is an answer for that. Uh, there's an answer for that question, but the answer puts the onus back on us. It puts the responsibility for our lives being the way that they are back on us. It, it, it puts the ball back in our court, and we don't, uh, we don't like that so much because it's far easier and has become quite acceptable, uh, at least in our society, to blame someone or something else if our life is not everything that we'd hoped it would be, if it seems somehow unfulfilling. So it's society's fault, the system's fault, it's the, uh, the government's fault, it's the economy's fault, it's uh, my family's fault, the way that I was raised, it's my spouse's fault, the way I'm being treated. It's just the way it is, as the video said, welcome to the real world. But the truth is, that's a cop-out. That is the coward's way out of taking responsibility for the life that God has intended for each of us to live. You see, God has a plan for every single one of our lives. And God's plan for you is the only path to experiencing true fulfillment in this life. But we have to choose to follow that plan. We, we can enjoy all sorts of things in this world, which is great. We can accomplish many significant achievements, which is great. We can accumulate tremendous wealth, which is great. Nothing inherently wrong with any of that. But when divorced from God's plan, all of those accolades, any of those achievements alone will not ultimately bring fulfillment in your life. They will not satisfy you, not for very long, because every one of us was created for a specific purpose, and it is only in the realization of that purpose, that plan, that anyone will ever experience true fulfillment. The satisfaction that comes only when you know that you are daily living in the center of God's will for your life. And yet I believe that so many people, I'm talking about Christians, so many of us never get there in this life because rather than choosing God's plan for us, we've bought into the cultural conviction that ultimate fulfillment is realized through consumption by serving ourselves rather than God and others. It's all about what we can get rather than what we can give. And our, our culture teaches us from the time we're very young that real fulfillment is found ultimately in what we can do or in what we can obtain for ourselves. And I think so many of us spend our lives, even as believers, primarily focused on ourselves, believing that once we've lifted ourselves to a 
a certain standard of living or a certain level of uh, self-gratification that we can then give out of our excess and by doing so maybe achieve some kind of balance in our lives. But for so many people, we never actually attain to that level, that standard which keeps moving. And that standard, we think we need to be happy, to be satisfied. We never get there, and so we just keep on striving for more. And all the while, we're focused, whether we realize it or not, on ourselves. And in the process, the dreams that we once had to change the world, to do something big, to make a difference in, in other people's lives, to impact other people, those dreams die. And they become replaced with an insatiable drive toward consumption. This appetite for self-satisfaction, which at the end of the day actually produces the opposite in us. The constant pursuit of self ultimately produces self-loathing, dissatisfaction with life, and deep-seated feelings of unfulfillment in people. The idea that we can consume our way to satisfaction and fulfillment is a hollow promise. It is a soulless pursuit that leaves people broken, dysfunctional, burned out, and, and disillusioned with their lives. It's why Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive, Acts 20, 35. We, we're more blessed when we give than when we receive, which is antithetical to the humanistic philosophies of this world. And yet that's exactly what our culture is shoving down our throats. That being responsible means having enough to ensure that there's never any want in our lives. That it is desirable to never lack anything. That we're being reckless when we intentionally risk our comfort and security or our comfort and security of our families to realize the dreams that God has put in us that it's negligent to not earn as much as possible or amass as much as we can, that somehow we're less caring toward our loved ones if we intentionally do anything that may put our safety or their safety at risk. And yet I think inherently we know that all of that is wrong. I think we know deep down that God created us for something bigger than ourselves, something bigger than what we've settled for and try to convince ourselves is right. Because, listen, we willingly and enthusiastically not only applaud, but we financially support. We give money to missionaries with small children who move into extremely dangerous parts of the world where they can be killed just for sharing the gospel. Now, why would we fund people's unimaginable irresponsibility if we really believed that putting your family at risk for the sake of God's calling on your life was unimaginably irresponsible? We wouldn't do that. We write entire books and make movies about those who become martyrs as they live out their purpose to the fullest. We celebrate people who turn down comfortable and safe lives in order to work in the slums of the world, giving their entire lives to helping the most vulnerable among us. We call those people heroes, giants of the faith because of the sacrifices they make and the results that we see from their lives. Because I think deep down we know that living with that kind of abandon for God is the most fulfilling life that we could ever live, even though so many of us are unwilling to actually live that way. Those are the kind of lives that we 
we often only dream about lives that seem so far from the reality of our own. And so we make excuses for ourselves because we believe that we don't have the background or the skills or the qualifications to achieve the extraordinary. So we settle for ordinary because it's safe. It's comfortable. And our culture has convinced us that it's right to feel that way. Welcome to the real world. That's just the way life is. And so we allow our dreams to die and our passion with them and we turn our focus inward because even though we've settled for less than God's perfect plan for us, we still desperately want to feel fulfilled. We still long to experience satisfaction with our lives. And so if we're not willing to pursue God's plan to that end, with all of the risk and uncertainty and discomfort that living that way can produce at times, if we're not willing to live that way, then maybe we can find fulfillment some other way. Maybe we can find it in self-pursuit. But again, that's a dead end every time because God's plan for your life involves far more than just you. But, but when we're focused on ourselves, we can't see all that he's intended and planned for us that is outside of ourselves. By the way, I'm not suggesting that our lives are not extraordinary unless we're out on a, a foreign mission field or risking our necks in some third world country that is hostile to the gospel. Sometimes he does call us out away from where we are into an entirely different set of surroundings and a whole new paradigm for our lives. However, the fact is many Christians are called to be exactly where they are right now. So the question is not always, are you willing to chuck everything that he's given you and go do something else? Often the question for us is, what are you willing to do with what he has given you already? What are you focused on? Yourself, your plan, or Jesus Christ and his people and his plan for you? Are we, are we so averse to risk, to sacrifice, to focusing more on him and others than ourselves that we've become impotent in what we're actually able to accomplish for Christ? I think it's at an epidemic level in the American church, in fact, because that is where you will find fulfillment when your life is focused on God's plan for you. That's when your life becomes extraordinary, exceptional. That is when other people's lives, listen, that is exactly when other people's lives are literally changed because of the life that you are living. When we abandon the self-focused life of constant consumption and follow the extraordinary plan of God instead. And I'll just tell you from experience, not that we've gotten it all right. It took me 40 years to even figure any of it out, but living that way is at times unsettling. It will require tremendous sacrifice and often a huge leap into the unknown. We gave up. You've heard the story. We gave up and walked away from most everything we had. Me and my family, a career, a big income, belongings, uh, friends, family, to pursue God's plan for our lives. Moved 5,000 miles away and started over with almost nothing, surrounded by complete strangers, doing something we'd never done before, all so that he could move us back here to start a church in our hometown. I said, Lord, if you just told me before we left, I could have started the church while I was here and kept all my stuff. <laughs> but that's not what he wanted for us. That wasn't the plan. And I'll tell you, the plan was downright scary. Still is some days. Unpredictable. 
very uncertain at times, irresponsible to some, but that's what following God's plan looked like for us. It may not look like that for you. I'm telling you, whatever it, whatever it is, it's worth it. Whatever it costs you, it's worth it. Whatever sacrifices you have to make to follow God's plan for you, it is worth it because there is no other way to become all that he's created you to be. And so the ball's in your court. It's up to you to decide whether or not to follow God's plan for you. And so as we continue in our story this morning, working our way through the book of Esther, we're going to see a remarkable example of what God can do through us when we're willing and obedient, willing to risk everything and obedient to his plan for our lives, no matter the cost. My hope is that through this story today and over the next several weeks that we will allow ourselves to begin to dream again, to realize, first of all, that God's plan for you has not expired and it is not unobtainable, no matter how big or world-changing it may be, because God alone is the ultimate arbiter of our future. And therefore, what we achieve in this life is based on his qualifications, not ours. We, we simply need to be willing and obedient to that plan. So let's jump back in the story where we left off last week at chapter 2. And just to set the scene from last week, the Jews in our story are living in exile under Persian rule. In fact, uh, this particular uh, generation of Jews was born into exile. And in chapter 1... The Persian king Ahasuerus had thrown this massive six-month-long party in order to impress his guests and garner support from key military and government leaders for the coming invasion that they were planning into Greece. And at the end of this whole affair, the king sends for his wife, Queen Vashti, to be brought before his drunken guests to be paraded around before them because, as verse 11 puts it, she was lovely to look at. So the king wants to impress the, the partygoers by making his wife model for them. And she shuts him down. She refuses to come. And so he divorces her in dramatic fashion and, and goes as far as passing a law, a decree, that all of the women in the kingdom who are married must henceforth, by law, honor and obey their husbands. And, and so that's where we left off the story. So we pick up the story now where we left off at chapter 2. And we'll begin with the first four verses. Let's read it together. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king uh, be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. So verse 1 opens up with after these things, which sounds like uh, chapter 2 picks up the story immediately after the events of chapter 1, but as we'll see in verse 16 of this chapter, this was actually uh, four years later. There was a four-year span of time between chapters 1 and 2, okay? It was particularly, uh, it was a particularly eventful 
four years as well for the Persian Empire because during that time, King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, made his great but unsuccessful invasion into Greece, which includes the now famous uh, Battle of Thermopylae. And ultimately, he comes home defeated uh, and a humiliated man. And so when verse 1 says, after these things, it's including a lot more than those things mentioned in chapter 1. The point is, the king here in the beginning of chapter 2 is downtrodden. He's depressed. His wife rejected him, so he divorced her. And then six months of uh, convincing his nation's leaders to go to war with Greece, he comes back soundly beaten only after depleting most of his military and kingdom's resources. And so again, when verse 1 says, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her, there's a hint of remorse and loneliness here. Okay, he's been rejected by his wife, beaten in battle, and severely weakened the dynasty in the process. The king is humiliated. He's depressed. He's lonely. And so when verse 2 says that the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, this was their attempt to lift the king's spirits, to try and bring him around. And so they hold a, a Miss Persian Empire contest to try and cheer up the king by finding him a new queen. And that's what they do. Let's keep reading. Verses 5 through 8. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, uh, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And by the way, this sounds like Mordecai, the way it's written, was carried away. He would have had uh, to have been 120 years old if that was the case. So this is probably referring to his father in that lineage. Uh, verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in the Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So there's a massive roundup of eligible young women for the pleasure of the king and the purpose of finding him a new queen. And among them was this young Jewish girl named Esther, which was her Persian name. It means star. Uh, her Hebrew name was Hadassah, which means myrtle. Uh, and interestingly, the myrtle bush uh, or the myrtle tree that grew on the hills around Jerusalem was prophetically symbolic of the Lord's forgiveness and acceptance and protection over his people. We find that in Isaiah in a couple places, uh, 41, 19, 55, 13, in, in uh, Zechariah 1, 8, where the myrtle replaces the thorns and the dry desert places and offers them protection as well. And as we progress through the book, we'll see increasingly that Esther, as she is here, is a type of Christ. She is a foreshadowing of the Christ. And so although uh, he's not expressly mentioned in the book. There is prophetic symbolism throughout that points us to the Messiah. In fact, you don't have to look very hard to see Jesus represented throughout this story. And in addition to the prophetic element, the prophetic symbolism in these verses, there's a great lesson to be learned from Esther's own circumstances here, which is that God's plan for you is not determined by your past 
okay? Because Esther, apart from the sovereign hand of God directing her life and circumstances, would have been the least likely candidate to be chosen for the future that was waiting for her. Okay, verse 5 tells us that she was a Jew. And just as we've seen throughout history, including today, wherever there are Jews, there's anti-Semitism. And we'll see that at its worst later in this book. And so just being a Jew among hundreds of non-Jews, hoping for the same possibility of becoming queen, would not have been an advantage, again, apart from God's providence at work. And then verse 7, we read that both of Esther's parents died, so she was being raised by her cousin Mordecai. So she doesn't have the advantage of her parents to raise and guide her through life. And then verse 8 tells us that many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai. And we know from the first century historian Josephus that there were 400 young women selected for this purpose. So here is Esther, a young Jewish girl with no parents in what amounts to a competition with hundreds of other non-Jewish girls, many of whom uh, probably had strong family backgrounds and possibly even some families with powerful ties to the Persian court. So from the outside looking in, uh, the young Jewish girl with no parents doesn't stand a chance. She has no royal ties, no impressive lineage, no parents, no prospects, no future. Everything would seem to be stacked against her. And yet, as we'll see, Esther becomes queen queen of the most powerful empire ruling over the vast majority of the known world at the time. Okay? The, the shortcomings and disadvantages of Esther's past had absolutely no bearing on the greatness of her future because God's plan for her was not determined by her past. It was determined solely on who he created her to be, namely the queen of Persia. It's the same for us today. Look, God has a plan for every single one of your days. And He created that plan from long before He created you. Psalm 139, 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Think about that. There is not one moment of your life that is a surprise to God or that he cannot overcome. Which means there is not one moment of your past that can negate one moment of your future that he's planned for you. No matter where you've been, what you've done, what's been done to you, or how bad of a mess you may have made, any disadvantage working against you, none of it, none of it, can overcome the plan that God has for your life. Because God's plan for you is not determined by your past. And so listen, God is not worried about your past. So why are you? If God, who is in control of, I don't know, everything is not pacing the floor worried or defeated or uncertain about your future, then why in the world would you be? It doesn't make any sense. Yet we've convinced ourselves that our future is somehow limited by our past. And look, I suppose if, uh, if our future depended solely upon us, 
then we'd probably have reason to be worried. But it's not our plan. It's God's plan. And he is bigger than what happened yesterday. He's in control of what happens today. And he is the author of what happens tomorrow. In fact, he's sovereign. He's in control over all of it. And so just in case you feel that you need permission to let go of anything in your past that is keeping you from walking in the fulfillment of God's plan for your future, then just consider this permission granted. Let's keep reading. Verses 9 through 14. This is Haggai now, the king's man, who had charge over these women as he's getting to know Esther. 9 through 14. And the young woman, a woman pleased him and won his favor. This is referring to Esther. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known uh, her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless he delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So back in verse 7, we read that Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So obviously, from a physical standpoint, Esther was quite stunning. But it would be a mistake to think that her physical appearance alone won her the favor of just about everyone that she came in contact with. Because uh, remember, in verse 2, the king's men said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. In other words, these weren't just 400 young random women. These were 400 young beautiful women. They were all physically beautiful. There was clearly something else about Esther that made others take notice of her above the other 399 beautiful women. And I believe that Proverbs 3, 3, and 4 explains what it was. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And throughout this book, Esther demonstrates her steadfast love and faithfulness for others. These were character traits that made her stand out in the crowd. In fact, they are the antithesis of the behavior of Queen Vashti when she refused the king. And certainly no one is giving the king a pass on his abhorrent behavior. But Esther, time and again throughout the story, proves her love and faithfulness in stark contrast to the former queen's pride and defiance to heed her king's command. And the point is, these qualities in Esther didn't show up once she reached the court. These were attributes that were instilled and cultivated in her at a young age. Uh, in the Bible, names for children were chosen to symbolize who they were and who they would become. True to form, we see so many examples of people in Scripture who lived up to their names. There was always great significance 
to one's name. And again, Esther's Hebrew name, her real name was Hadassah or Myrtle, which symbolized the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God to protect his people. And the Myrtle tree was known for its sweet-scented and luxuriant beauty. So Esther or Hadassah, she was just living up to her name. She was just being herself, and it won her the favor of many people, including, as we'll see, the king and his attendants. And yet Mordecai had instructed her to conceal her lineage as a Jew, which she was faithful and obedient to do, as there was this very close, loving relationship between her and, and Mordecai, which we see throughout the story. It's quite sweet between the two of them. And even here in verse 11, which tells us that every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And so Mordecai loved and wanted to protect Esther. And since there was great anti-Semitism in parts of the Persian culture, which probably would have been even more pronounced during this selection process if others had found out that Esther was a Jew. So she's therefore faithful and obedient to Mordecai in keeping her Jewish identity a secret. And then verse 12 tells us that there's this 12-month-long, this year-long process of beautifying before they would go into the king, including treatments with oil and spices and ointments uh, during that time. And the, the descriptions, if you, if you have time, we don't have time to go over it today. You go back and read <laughs> what they had to go through in preparation to be with the king for one night. It is fascinating reading. We don't have time to cover all of that today. And yet it wasn't 12 months long simply because it took that long for the women to become physically acceptable to be seen by the king. A big part of the reason that they waited a year was to be able to determine definitively whether or not any of the women had become pregnant already before coming into the harem so that the king would not be responsible with fathering a child that was not actually his. So there's a lot at stake here for these young women. A, a tremendous amount of time and money and manpower had been invested to prepare them for their time with the king. And I just want to I just want to pause here from the story and mention something. Because we read all about this, and I think often we tend to turn our noses up at this whole scenario. Certainly, certainly no one's condoning it or saying that's the way it should, should be. It's the very height of arrogance and presumption and lasciviousness to take 400 young girls from their families, who, by the way, once they entered the harem, could never return to their families or marry anyone else. This was their entire life once they were a part of the king's harem. But when girls in that culture were selected for the harem, typically they didn't go kicking and screaming. This, this was for most of them akin to winning the lottery, okay? Because many of them had zero prospects for much of a future, just like our uh, poor orphan girl Esther here. But once selected for the king's harem, they not only lived out their lives in the lap of luxury and opulence, having the very best of everything given to them, surrounded by many others in the same status, but many of them would actually never end up even seeing the king. These kings that had hundreds or more wives and concubines would often go their entire lives only having intimate relations with a certain number of them. It was more a status symbol for them than anything. And even among those who did go into the king, most of them would only see him once, and they were never taken back to him again, as we see in verse 14. And so 
I just want to say before we completely judge these young women who willingly entered the harem, not that they had a choice because they didn't, but before we think too lowly of them for actually wanting this fate. And I know it's different, but just think about how many people in our culture who are willing to get up every morning for their entire lives and go to jobs that they absolutely hate laboring at that work day in and day out for decades on end, all for the hope of earning enough money to spend the rest of their time living in relative comfort and ease. It may be different, but it's not as different as we, as we think. This was for many of these women the best hope for a good future that would ever be presented to them, and they took it willingly. doesn't make it right but we should probably consider them with a measure of grace in view of uh, many of our own decisions, I think, that we make about our own lives. Let's keep reading, verses 15 through 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So after the 12 months of preparation and validation was over, these young women were taken to the king one at a time so they could take uh, anything that they wanted with them uh, to try and please the king on their night of nights. And Esther, in the, the month of Tebeth, that was midwinter, the 10th month of the Jewish religious calendar, in yet another display of great wisdom, knowing that Haggai knew the king and his preferences far more than she could. She trusted him to advise her on how to approach the king on her night. And as a result, Esther goes into the king in a manner uh, really suggested by the author here, a manner of understated simplicity, probably in great contrast to the Gentile women who were heavily adorned with the over-the-top clothing uh, and jewelry and cosmetics. And as a result, Esther wins the king's favor and becomes queen of Persia. And so the king holds a great feast in honor of the new queen, and he sets the crown that Vashti refused on Esther's head and celebrates her with all the people. It, it really is a stunning turn of events for Esther, and as we'll see, for the Jewish people as a whole. But it's also a great example for us that God's plan for you is not dependent upon your accomplishments. Yet again, uh, Esther was beautiful. But out of the 399 other women, do we really think that it was physical beauty alone that won her the heart of the king, the heart of Mordecai, the heart of Haggai, the hearts of all those other women with whom she was in competition? Verse 15 says she was winning the favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and yet she didn't have the pedigree of others. She didn't have the prospects of others. She didn't have the resources of others. She didn't have the position of others. All that she had was who God created her to be and a willing and obedient heart. 
She couldn't point to a list of accomplishments that qualified her to be the queen. This was a poor, orphaned Jewish girl. What in the world had she ever accomplished in her own life that could be listed possibly as a qualification for becoming and serving as queen over a pagan nation that happened to be the most powerful nation in the world at the time? She hadn't accomplished anything whatsoever. Nothing that could qualify her for that title, for that position, or for that future. And yet out of 400 of the most beautiful and qualified and accomplished women in the kingdom, the king chooses Esther to be queen. Why is that really? It's because God chose Esther to be queen long before she was ever born. It had nothing to do with previous accomplishments or qualifications. She had none. It had everything to do with God's plan, which had long been established for her, okay? You don't need a wall full of plaques or a Facebook account full of friends or a long list of professional achievements or any other accolade when it comes to God's plan unfolding in your life. All that you need is a willing and obedient heart. That's all he's looking for in you, a willingness to follow his plan and obedience to follow through with that plan as it is revealed to you. Which, by the way, is not a one-time decision. Being willing and obedient to follow God's plan for your life is a daily decision. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone would decide to willingly and obediently follow God's plan for their life, then let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily, Jesus said. We have to make that decision to willingly and obediently follow him every single day. He didn't say if you're willing and obedient and qualified. He didn't say once you've reached a particular level of accomplishment, then you should take up your cross and follow me. No, he simply said deny yourself, your natural inclination to serve yourself, to consume and instead choose every single day of your life to willingly and obediently follow me. There's a place for mentoring, yes, for discipleship, for learning. I am a strong believer in education. And of course, some of the greatest education you'll ever receive in your life is experience. And along with those experience, uh, experiences often comes accomplishments. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to be ashamed of for what God allows us to accomplish. But at the same time, those accomplishments are not mystical keys that open the doors to the next level of God's plan for us. Yet that's exactly how we view our lives sometimes, that we can only walk in willing obedience to God's plan once we've attained to some particular level of accomplishment. Yet Esther is a great example of the fallibility of that way of thinking because it is God alone who opens the doors to our future. It is God alone who makes his plan for us available to us and it is God alone in what he accomplishes in us that qualifies us for the next step in his great plan for our lives. So we're not limited by our past. We're not limited by a lack of accomplishments we are only limited by our own unwillingness and disobedience. More than any outside pressure or opposition that we ever face in this life that tries to stop us from carrying out our calling, the single greatest threat 
that we will ever face to successfully carrying out God's plan, His calling in our lives, the greatest threat to carrying out His will in this life is our will. More than any other external pressure that we will ever face that opposes our calling, the most difficult opposition that we will have to overcome is our own will when that is different than His will. Because if our will is not in line with His, then we have to choose. Willingness to follow Him or unwillingness. Obedience to follow Him or disobedience. The, the Apostle Paul describing himself said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Romans 7, 15 through 20. Paul is struggling with what God wants him to do because what Paul wants to do, his will, is at times in contention with God's will, which is the case for all of us. Every single one of us falls profoundly short of God's absolute standards for our lives, and God knows that. And so, yeah, there's grace and forgiveness without a doubt. The problem is when we're more committed to our will, our plan for our lives, than we are to His plan for our lives. Then when His plan presents itself, we balk, we push back, because it's not what we expected, it's not what we envisioned, it may not even be what we want. And so instead of willingness and obedience, we respond to God with defiance and disobedience, which is precisely how Queen Vashti responded to her king's command. When in contrast, Esther responds with willingness and obedience to God's plan. And in the process, his plan, his purpose is fulfilled in and through her. Okay, let's finish the story for today. Verses 19 uh, to the end of the chapter. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. How easy it would have been for Esther, once crowned queen of this vast empire, to feel as if she'd arrived. She'd been dealt a difficult hand early in life as an orphan born into Egypt, into, or excuse me, into exile in a pagan land with not any real outlook for the future, but now God's favor and blessing were smiling down on her. This was her time. After all, the whole kingdom has now celebrated her. Everyone loves her. She has all that she could ever want, right? This, this is all about Esther, or so it would have been easy for her to think, but this wasn't just about Esther, and she knew it. There was far more going on in Esther's life than that which immediately concerned just Esther because God's plan for her was bigger than her. And likewise, 
God's plan for you is bigger than you. We not only have to understand this, but we're responsible for it. We have to steward the plan of God in our lives. For Esther, there was a larger game afoot here. She and Mordecai could have resigned the affairs of the pagan court as not concerning them, but they didn't. They very much concerned themselves with the larger story that was unfolding before them. God had placed both of them in strategic positions to affect the lives of others, not just for their own blessing. And by the way, it wasn't just that Esther was queen. In verse 19, when Mordecai is described as sitting at the king's gate, that phrase king's gate in the, the Hebrew is melech sha'ar. It refers to the royal court. In other words, Mordecai wasn't just lounging around some random gate. At the courtyard, he was working there in an administrative capacity within the palace. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been there. These two were placed strategically by God to affect the lives of others and as a result of their willingness and obedience to something greater than themselves, a conspiracy to assassinate the king was foiled, the king's life was spared, and Mordecai and Esther's stock is to rise even more as this intervention by Mordecai and Esther was recorded uh, in the king's book of the Chronicles, which Herodotus, the uh, 4th century a historian writes about as well. He calls it an official list in the Persian archives naming the king's benefactors. And that list will factor prominently into this story in the coming weeks. Okay? When we are willing and obedient in following God's plan for our lives, others are affected by that. And we see that really all the way through this book. Back in uh, chapter 1, verse 7, during the first feast, when the king and his men, thinking only of themselves, were all getting drunk, it says that the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And interestingly, here in chapter 2, verse 18, at the second feast, the one for Esther, there was a completely different result, a completely different mood coming from the royal court at this party. It says that the king granted a remission of taxes to the province and gave gifts with royal generosity. And the royal generosity spoken of here was in the form of food given out to the poor so that everyone in the kingdom could share in the celebration. And if you look at the, the phrase, the original phrase in each of those passages at both celebrations in the, the original Hebrew language. It's the same phrase, melech yod. It means with the same lavishness that the wine was doled out to the horde of drunken men at the first party. With that same lavishness, gifts of benevolence were given out to the poor at the second party. It's awesome. What was the difference from the first party to the second? Esther the new queen. You see, the plan that God had for her life far transcended just her life. It affected everyone throughout the kingdom, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, because God's plan for Esther was bigger than Esther. And that truth will become even more pronounced as we work further into the story in the coming weeks. For today, we simply must take hold of this truth for ourselves, not only in how we think and in how we feel, but in the way that we act. Because look, God's plan for you 
is bigger than you, which means we have a responsibility to use the gifts and the calling that he's designed for us long before we were born to their greatest effect for the sake of not just our personal lives or just our family or just our circle of friends, but we must leverage every single ounce of gifting and calling that he's put in us to affect the entire kingdom, all of God's people, both those who are following him now and those who have yet to. And when we do that, when we begin to utterly spend ourselves, which means denying our natural impulse to serve ourselves, when we do that, when we deny ourselves daily and instead we spend every ounce of the gifts and calling within us in the service of the king and the kingdom, that is God and his people, when you do that, your life will change. It will change dramatically from ordinary to extraordinary, from safe to exceptional, from full of self to full of purpose, and from less than satisfied, I'm telling you, to ultimate fulfillment, because that is where you find fulfillment. When your life is focused on God's plan for you, that's when your life becomes extraordinary, exceptional. And that is when other people's lives are literally changed because of the life that you are living. So whatever it takes to get there, it's worth it. Whatever it costs you, it's worth it. Whatever sacrifices you have to make to follow God's plan for you, it is worth it. So resurrect those dreams that he's put in you because there's no other way to become all that he's created you to be. And the ball is in your court. It's up to you to decide whether or not to follow God's plan for you. Let's pray.